If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How's your summer treating you? We're having some incredible summer weather here in Minneapolis. Planning to see an outdoor concert tonight, and the forecast is uh, not a cloud in sight, it looks like, for the next three or four days, and temps of 80 degrees. Does it get any better than this? A week ago, I was wearing uh, layers and a winter hat and gloves and rain gear in Iceland. Sounds horrible to a lot of people, uh, especially people here in Minneapolis who live with a certain amount of fear of winter's return. It starts to rear its head around late August around here, and by late October, you can tangibly feel the panic setting in. Winter is a four-letter word, in other words, uh, so I apologize for using it. But, uh, you know, I didn't mind the cool weather in Iceland. In fact, it was almost perfect for traveling. I never thought I'd say that about a summer trip, but besides the cooler temps, uh, the, the rain seemed to find us at some point every day, but it was perhaps the most beautiful place I've ever visited, and I think it poss quite possibly my favorite family trip to date. But I'm going to hold off a bit here on telling you more about it because I'm going to share everything in a special podcast episode next week, uh, my experience. And if you haven't been there before and you think you might want to visit at some point, plan to take some notes. And if you've been there already, this is a chance for you to revisit vicariously. I have a conversation coming up today with fellow podcaster April Seifert, whose story is a real inspiration to me. But first, I'd like to welcome new listeners to the show. Thanks for checking it out. Highway to Health is an exploration of how we can improve our experience, our states of wellness, in our bodies, with each other, in our communities, and in our natural world. Having worked in integrative healthcare for more than 20 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our world come to have an effect on our health. And it is my hope that through the conversations here on the podcast, you'll be able to navigate it all a little bit better and develop a blueprint for your own health and well-being. I also want to say thank you to new supporters of the podcast. Your dollars are really helping us broaden community support around this project and all of the projects we touch here through conversations on Highway to Health. That being said, I, I have to ask uh, for anyone who's listening to try to pitch in. Right now, we are still not quite meeting our goals, and we have a lot of resource still to put out for you. If you haven't donated yet and have been meaning to, it's very easy. It just takes a minute and you can donate for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. And uh, would you consider leaving us a review and a rating at the bottom of your podcast feed? It'll help others find this podcast and learn more about it and encourage them to click and get resourced. Thanks so much for doing this. My guest for today's show, April Seifert, is uh, the host of Women Inspired Podcast and the co-founder of Peak Mind, interactive tools and resources to build psychological strength in your life. When we first met, we were sharing our backgrounds with each other, and she said she felt people needed preventative work for the mind, exercises that strengthened and tone areas that tend to be weak or inflexible, something like a gym membership for the mind. This idea excited me, but I didn't know that she had Peak Mind, this program she was developing, brewing already behind the scenes. I also had no idea of the health challenge she had been overcoming in her life and that she'd been dealing with since the age of 13 and the psychological strength that she had to develop. And I'm so grateful she's joining me here to share her story on Highway to Health. Please enjoy my conversation today with the one and only April Seifert. One of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on the podcast is because you, there's something that you all of a sudden started doing that struck a chord with me with starting to talk about a health condition that you had. Yep. And, you know, 
it, it seems like it hasn't been. I mean, I don't, I don't remember hearing it coming up that much in your in your episodes until that point. Was that something? Was there a decision that you made this year, or something happened? You know, as I started to think about how to, there. I mean, there's a set of key concepts. I think self awareness that. It, are so critical for people being as self-aware as you can possibly be, especially into some of the more subtle and subconscious things that impact your behavior and maybe your belief systems. Um, I started thinking about how can I better teach that to people? Because the field of psychology is like a gold mine for that type of stuff. And it's being done badly out there. Like there's a lot of people in the self-help industry who are doing great work and are doing an amazing, an, an amazing job. But there's also a group of people who I think are just profiting from the fact that they're putting information out there that has no basis to it. And so I wanted to bring that information to people. But what I found is that it lands a lot better and it's much more accepted and people resonate with it a lot better if I'm telling them why it was so important to me. And those life experiences that were tough... Yeah. They were a big part of it. Yeah. And so I've just started, you know, throwing my own story out there more and more often because I find people just resonate with that so much better. And if that story can help somebody else, then that's what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to put it out there. And so, so you weren't, you weren't, um, you, you were diagnosed with MS at how, how old were you? 13, 14, somewhere in there. Yeah. Wait, super young. What was going on at the time? How did you, how did they pick it up? It was actually really crazy. So, um, The full story, it's a little bit of a windy one, but uh, my dad passed away when I was 11. So I was in the fifth grade. And naturally, after you lose a close family member like that, all the stuff that you would expect happens, happens, right? Tons of grief, big upheaval in the family. You know, you're trying to sort of stop the ship from rocking and just get to some stable ground a little bit. And in the process of that, I remember in the sixth grade, I started having these very strange symptoms, like half of my torso. You could draw a precise line down my torso. On one side of it, numb. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it, not. One leg would be extremely sensitive to heat or cold or would be tingly. The -hmm. other one, not. Uh, And I'd have all these strange symptoms and I would talk to my mom about them and she's like, you know, that's really strange. Maybe you, you know, need to see a chiropractor. Maybe you have a pinched nerve. Maybe yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and it wasn't until the end of sixth grade when we were taking photos. Right, you have like your your elementary school edu- uh, graduation. You're going to going to middle school. This is a big deal. We were taking all these photos, and I looked at them when they came back. This is like way back in the day when you developed photos. So they came back from the farm. Yeah, yeah, you sent them out in a big bag. Uh, They came back, and I looked at them, and I was smiling, but my smile was lopsided. Uh I was only smiling with half of my mouth, and I didn't even realize that that was the case. Um, So fast forward, as I got to, to middle school, it went from being sort of surface level symptoms like numbness and tingling and that type of thing to full out paralysis setting in. I wasn't able to walk. Um, and we went to a number of doctors and I, I tell the story about my dad passing away because this happened so closely after that, that most of the initial doctors who we saw kind of dismissed it. And mm-hmm. they thought, it was attention-seeking behavior. Right, I must right. be grieving. I'm clearly a hysterical girl at this point. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't for, it was a couple of years of a diagnostic process of finding the right doctor who would actually take it seriously, who would do the right course of diagnostic tests to determine what it actually right, was. Right. So it took a long time. I was actually much younger than that when my symptoms set in, which is super strange. It's not common for MS. Well, it's interesting too, because I, I, I came into this field and into my field of, of work because of a back problem that I had that I, I think I started having as a teenager. Mm. And I mean, I think there was some some stressors and some, you know, some kinds of trauma, but my, you know, like my parents divorced before I ever was aware of my father, that kind of stuff. Mm. That has its, you know, 
play. But I also knew a lot of kids who were single parent kids. And so it felt sort of normal to me too. Yeah. That wasn't as big of a deal. But, you know, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was having like chronic muscle spasms, just getting up off the couch. It didn't take very much. All of a sudden I'd just be out for three days. Mm. And so I had the same thing, like the, the diagnostic part of some, someone going through something like that. Yeah. There's a, probably a mental health component, the mind body part of what's, what's going on. That's undeniable. But that's also a little bit denying the the emotional part sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and and what that and, and what you know grief or you know some kind of emotional trauma does to somebody. Right. But it's also like, I, you know, and I and I feel for this because I go through it a lot. And part of the reason I was interested in talking to you is because I've worked with a lot of people who have been sort of like going through testing, wondering if if MS might be what's what's happening with mm. different kinds of things, and it's it's really hard and sometimes hard to sort out, even if they think. Maybe it's MS, mm-hmm. and and still continuing to do testing when it's there's a lot of these kind of borderline conditions where you don't quite know what's going on, and some of it comes out of trauma too. Like a lot of people who have been through a car accident or had something mm-hmm. physically happen to them, where they on the other side of that, they sometimes do develop MS, or sometimes they actually have MS type symptoms but come back out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so but it's but but that that diagnostic part of things is always so hard because. You know, you especially with children, and I, I see this with my own kids. Where yeah. I know there are some attention-seeking things. My my son had a concussion last year, and and he was also struggling on the team. You know, mm. like, and so there was like this: Does he not want to play anymore? Or right? And, and I treat a lot of concussions myself, and we had testing done, and nothing seemed it wasn't nothing was coming back too terribly. But yeah. you kind of have to also just be like, okay, well, I. I have to stay open to whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. So, so what what did they finally? What were the what was the marker that they've kind of figured out for you? You know, it was interesting because I I mentioned I went through several doctors. So, there it was an initial couple of doctors that I saw. I was I was hospitalized for a week. I was really not doing well, not able to walk at all. I wasn't fine motor started to go. I couldn't write. Um, and I was in the hospital because basically they were they were putting me on EEGs and mm-hmm. in the MRI, you know, constantly spinal taps and I mean you name it, like all the things. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I was having massive amounts of steroids because they couldn't figure out what in the heck was going on. And ultimately, we had heard about this neurologist in my uh, in a neighboring town who allegedly did not see kids. Um, he wasn't, he didn't include any kids in his practice, but he was supposedly really great at these strange cases. And my mom pulled a bunch of strings, called everybody she knew and got us a meeting with him. And I went in, uh, and you know, not really knowing what to expect, but because apparently at that time I seemed like a mature kid who he could, you know, handle being in a room with, you know, frequently, he took my case and it was it wasn't until that point that you know he looked at everything that had been done and he said you know i know you've been through a number of things but there's a right way to figure out what you have and mm-hmm. i'm sorry but we're going to put you through another battery of diagnostic oh, tests but we're going to do it right and in a sequence yeah. and so another mri a set of mris another spinal tap more blood draws than you can possibly imagine to rule out things like Lyme and yep, viruses yep. and other things that can very much masquerade and have very similar symptoms. He and I, uh, so we went through this process, this diagnostic process, and ultimately he sat me down and said, here's the thing, every one of the symptoms you're having, and by that time I was going blind and even more crazy symptoms were happening. He said, all the symptoms you're, ha- you're having look like MS. You're not old enough to have it, and I can't get any findings from your spinal tap that suggest that you have MS. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anything else that it might be. So what I think we should do, he's like, you are too young. This is too risky. You have too much life ahead of you that would be better if you could spend it not as disabled as you are right now. He said, what I think we should do is treat you as though you have MS and see if you respond. And I said, okay. 
Now that <laughs> that okay isn't a, isn't an easy one because what that means is what treatment meant at that time was uh, weekly intermuscular injections of. I was a tiny person. Yeah. I mean, I was like a hundred pound. <laughs> right. I mean, so like imagine the uh, folks who can't see me right now. Uh, I'm like a hundred and twenty pound grown woman right now. Imagine like a hundred pound adolescent kid yeah. at the time taking these intermuscular injections that the needles an inch and a quarter long. I didn't have an inch and a quarter of, you know, quad muscle for it to go into. This was just the process of it was really difficult, but the medication interferon leads to incredibly rough side effects, especially at the time, the way that the medicine was, um, was done at the time it it was new. So they were doing what the best that they could. Plus hormonally you're at that age where it's like, Totally crazy. I don't even know how they how they track with with that kind of thing. Yeah. So it was well, and there was a hormonal aspect to my MS. It would yeah. get worse yeah. around my period. Yeah. It was sense. just crazy. So we decided to say yes to this medication, even though it was incredibly expensive for a family who was now on a single income because yeah. my dad had passed away. Uh, it was incredibly expensive. I got brutally sick from it every single week brutally sick. I would take it on Friday night so that I could be well enough by Monday morning to go to school. And Sundays I was doing decent. Saturdays what, what, what were terrible. Were you feeling? Imagine the worst flu you've ever had. Oh, the yeah. worst. Yeah. Like where wearing clothes, it just hurts to exist. Like yeah. wearing clothes hurts. Yeah. Your skin is so achy. You just want to lay. I would tell my mom, I remember I just, well, and you're freezing to death. Like the worst chills that feels like the core of your body is freezing to yeah. death and you can't get warm. It, it sounds like, you know, I, I treat a lot of uh, a lot of babies and mm. when, when moms have mastitis, mm. I, don't know, I don't know if you've ever had that. I didn't. But, but it's, it's, it sounds exactly the same. It's I just, believe that. It's, it, everybody says it's worse than the flu. It's worse than the it's childbirth itself was. Horrible. And I would tell my mom, I just want to go and like find a hot tub and fill it with really warm gel. Yeah, and I yeah. just want to lay in this gel so that I don't have to wear clothes, but I can be warm. And that's how I'd spend my weekends in junior high and high school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, so what, so how did it progress then as you got, as you got further in your teen years? Yeah. I was insanely fortunate for two reasons. One, for so many reasons, but one is that for some reason I was able to keep my head on me with those symptoms. I was able to see the bigger picture of, okay, this is a couple of days. This Mm -hmm. is not permanent. It will go away. You can handle this. So I was able to manage the symptoms and handle them, which was great. But two... I started to plateau out in terms of how bad the symptoms were. So some people who take, interferon's really unpredictable with people. So some people who take it um, have those terrible symptoms and they don't go away. Uh For me, as long as I was taking it regularly, it's like my body started to acclimate to it and it just knew how to handle it at that point. And as long as I didn't miss a dose... I would stay at kind of a decent plateau. I didn't feel awesome, right? but I wasn't super sick either. But you didn't so, need to be in the warm gel bath. Yeah, in the warm gel hot tub. Um, so at some point, the, the symptoms plateaued out, and that was also fortunate. And then the third thing, the biggest, biggest, biggest thing, I responded well to the treatment. And I think that's part of what helped me keep going. Yeah. My vision returned, uh-huh. and I was able to walk well again and write and... Yeah. I wasn't so sensitive to cold and all of those things started to come back. So this neurologist who placed this big bet, who said, I think you have this, you know, we don't know what else to do other than to treat you for it and see what happens. He was right. Hmm. I responded. Wow. So, so at what point did, did, did treatments change at all then as you were getting older? So what's interesting is... Throughout high school, I would say high school was like a stabilization of my MS. I religiously took my medication, again, in spite of the expense and just how difficult it was for my family to afford it yeah. and you know make all of that work. I religiously took my medication. Things stabilized in high school. 
And by college, I was in the position where I wasn't having exacerbations anymore. Like I had maybe two throughout all of college and I haven't had one since. And I'm almost 40. Yeah. So that is a miracle in and of itself. I know that I've had a few lesions that have happened. Mm-hmm. So I have regular MRIs. I'll have another one in the fall. How, how regularly now? Uh, now it's every few years. Um, I, they wanted to have the one in the fall because I had a baby. And oh, when yeah, you're pregnant, yeah. you have yeah. to go off of interferon. And while you're breastfeeding, they want you off of interferon. Now there's some wiggle room there. But um, minimally when you're pregnant, they want you off of interferon. So, yeah. you, you know, I just, it was my second baby. So I was essentially, in the last few years, I spent two years off of my medication. So they really want to check and get like another good clean baseline. So that's what we'll do in the fall. But I know that I've had little lesions here and there, but it's been nothing that I've felt on the outside and nothing that anyone would know Hmm. at all. I've been so incredibly fortunate and I don't know, I mean, as you know, how unpredictable this condition is and how many directions it can go for people. I don't know if it's my case, is it just this particular card that I drew yep. that this particular case of MS isn't that bad? Well, because of when you, when it when, started. When you're younger, yeah. are you better able to remap all of that? Right, and right. is your body able to recover? Is it that it was, I was young and I was treated yeah. quickly and aggressively? Yeah. Is it lifestyle? I'm pretty healthy. So MS is autoimmune. There are some basic things you do to keep your body healthy: eat, sure, eat well, sure sleep, it, drink water, exercise. Yeah. You know, those, I'm sure that ha- that's got to help. I I believe that it does, but I've been a person who's focused on working out and keeping my body strong. Yeah. Did that help? Is it all of them? I have no idea. Yeah. But I, you literally wouldn't know and today. Being, being optimistic. Maybe. I mean, you Very know, I think much that's, so. Uh, Maybe. In, in a lot of studies, they say you know that that viewpoint really changes the outcome most of the time. Yeah, and two, the psychological part of it, you can't convince me otherwise. When you measure people biologically, cortisol responses and other biological measurements, I mm-hmm. mean, just like galvanic skin response and their heart rate and all of that, in response to anxiety and stress. You cannot convince me that, well, and studies show this, the more chronically we're in that place yeah. of cortisol response, cortisol response, yeah. cortisol, you know, that heightened sense of anxiety or stress or nervousness, mm-hmm. it takes a toll on your body. And immune wise, it takes a toll. We know that yeah. people who are under chronic stress get sick more often. If you can keep your immune system just nice and calm and stable, MS does better. Is yeah. it perfect? No. Is it a cure? No. But you can't convince me that some of the psychological work and just resilience work, you can't convince me that that hasn't played a toll too. I, I agree. I, th- I think we, we build in this, this neurochemical you know, balance by the way our, our, we, we live our lives. And, and, and that's part of the reason why people come see me doing craniosacral therapy. Part of it is actually working on like the, the the you know the more physiological housing mm. of the nervous system and helping that system function better, but a lot of it is also just balancing that autonomic nervous system response. Mm-hmm. So if we're if we're in, and I see this with people sometimes who have conditions or who have been in car accidents, sometimes you know people who have had really bad whiplash will start getting tremory uh, effects from mm. that from that you know the the whiplash trauma and probably pinched nerve or something else. And when they get stressed or when they're you know. In, in a heightened state for long periods of time, the tremor will start to come back. And the funny thing is that just from this craniosacral work, a lot of times, and sometimes it's a session, sometimes it's a couple sessions, that stuff will quiet down. Mm. And it's, and you know, that's not necessarily an autoimmune thing, but those are the same kinds of people that I see sometimes who think, is this MS? You know, like we're, we're not, we're not quite sure sometimes what's going on, but if, if we can get the symptoms to go away and they're not finding anything in testing, then that's a that's a pretty easy way out. Yeah, you know, so. I mean, I've had my my most recent physician. He's brilliant. He's at the University of Minnesota. He there's at any point in time a couple handfuls of clinical trials going on, and he's usually leading half of them. Yeah, uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. But who, also, who is it? Um, his name is Adam Carpenter. Okay, 
He's also very pragmatic. So I, I mentioned, you know, breastfeeding and um, how, especially even even up to the point that I was planning on getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, there, officially with interferon, the drug company will tell you they want you to go off of it for six months before you start trying. Mm. And so I came to him and I said, okay, here's the thing. I said, I'm old. Like we're having kids old. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. yes, I'm not old. I'm like almost forty, but still. But you like, just you just had right, a baby. Childbearing age, I'm old. Right. And so this could take a while, and I'm super not willing to go off my medication for that long, and then try for potentially a year. Yeah. That's a long time to be exposed, and so um, he's very pr- pragmatic in that. I came to him with evidence, with studies from medical yeah. journals, and yeah. I said, you know, it looks like. The biggest issue like here is that if you're taking it when you're pregnant, like then there's a bigger issue. And up until that point, like the interferon in your body drops off pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so what if we do this? What if I track ovulation every month so I know, you know, when something could happen? Mm -hmm. What if I test early and test often so I know the minute I'm pregnant and I promise in that minute I won't take another shot. Yeah. And he's like, you know, my official answer has to go with the drug company, but he's like, you have a good case. He's like, yeah. I think you do too. And the same with when I was breastfeeding, you know, there's a reason why, um, there's a reason why you can't eat interferon and have it work, right? It does, you, you digest it and it doesn't work. So even if there's some trace amounts that could get through in your in your breast milk, again, there's a reason why you can't eat interferon and have it work. It would do nothing. <laughs> right, right. And I'm like, this is crazy that I'm going to keep myself exposed for a really long time. He's like, you have a case. It's, it's interesting too, because a, a lot of times, and this is one of those things I always try to get in intake is I think sometimes when someone's been through something like, like you have, you are so in tune to your body and your body's responses and everything that you know about mm-hmm. that. Whereas this person is an expert in it but they actually haven't lived it a lot of times. Yeah. And so I, I think that those kinds of things, you should actually write something about this because I think it'd be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, but I think it's it's one of those things that should, you know, sh- I think your doctor responded super well in the in this situation because I would I would do the same thing. Plus, you know, you, if, you, you don't know if you're going to get pregnant if you stop for six months. Right, you have no idea. You're, you're, you're taking a risk with your own life. Because, Usually. Because, you know, six, six months is a long time and you, it could take you three or four months to get pregnant and then what happens? You right, know? right. And what was wonderful about him is that he knows, I mean, there is not an ounce in me that would put my kids at risk, right. but what I did and my, my propensity has always been to, okay, I don't like, I don't necessarily like the common option. Do I have to take that option? If I do, I do. Like yeah. I didn't love the idea of having MS and having to take interferon, but that was my option. That yeah. was my best option. So in this case, I'm like, well, let me learn about this a little bit more. Let me go to actual good sources. Yeah. No Google, yeah. no blogs. I don't know those people. Right. I don't know if I can trust them. I went to PubMed and I read journal articles yeah. and that's what I brought to him. It's, it's the best place to go sometimes for that stuff. Yeah, and I felt like I was making a decision that was a good decision for me that didn't put me at risk, but also didn't put my kids at risk either. Yeah. So, so did did uh, you pursuing a PhD in psych have anything to do with your condition? Or how, <laughs> how did that come about? You know, I to some extent, on one hand, I wanted to find. I was very pragmatic at the time. I wanted to find a job that I could do, even if I was blind, even mm. if I was disabled. Yeah. No matter what, I can still be employed. Yeah. So that was part of it. I'm like, well, my days of professional basketball are out. <laughs> Not that I was a terrible basketball player, but <laughs> so think, you know, I, I thought about that. But then I also thought about my experience with my dad and my experience with MS and psychologically what helped me get through those times. And I was so interested in the field from that perspective. Yeah. I was also interested in the field from, and this is what I ultimately did study. I am a social cognitive psych- psychologist. So I was really interested in how, um, how our mind develops. And by that, I mean, not physically, how our mind develops to encode information and use it. Because it seems so sterile to say it that way, 
But that's legit how most of our personality runs and expresses. You learn who you are from things that you see around you. Now that's not to say you can't test those assumptions. You absolutely can. But the default, if you let your mind go the default route, which most people do, I would argue, it's all just your mind encodes information. And I like to tell people, your mind is powerful. It is not that sophisticated though. It's powerful in that it shapes your behavior more than you even can possibly imagine. But it's not that sophisticated because literally it just looks at, oh, that thing happened in close proximity to that thing. And it happened kind of often that way. Okay, cool. Those two things must go together. Yeah. And and the way I try to explain it too, even with people who have been through like chronic pain period, I've been Mm -hmm. been there, uh, some kind of trauma or PTSD is that the, the the way that the the brain and body map is basically kind of like wearing grooves in the system so that we yes right that's, yes that's exactly it yes and, it, and it's and it's not and it's it's as simple as that and and so it's sort of like when you learn how to play piano let's say you know eventually your hand just knows the shape and it and that and that shape is just developed over time mm-hmm. by that neural neural path you know over and over again yes and then once if you tried to change the way that you made that that shape with your hand your body wouldn't be able to do that and so not the, easily. And right, and can and, you know? And I've had to overcome. I'm a musician as well. So I've had to overcome some really because I was self-taught and an ear learner, and so yeah. I had to you know get past some really bad hand technique yeah. <laughs> that I learned early on. But but yeah, it, it it does. It takes retraining, and that's part of why I st- after I got into doing body work and craniosacral work and realizing I had this opportunity once I freed up the the system that I could retrain it. And then I, I decided to get into teaching physical movement because at that point I realized I had this opportunity to sort of like retrain where midline was and mm. how, the, how the hips worked and how the shoulders worked. All the things that sort of worked into postural correction that I, th- I thought were causing problems for people. And that it, it just, it, for me, it, it shortened the route. And in a way that I don't think physical therapists always get, I think actually I think they're getting way better. And I've, I've been doing this for 21 years, but... Mm-hmm. From what I've seen in the last like five years, things are really like changing. So that's great. I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. Well, the example I give people all the time that usually gets people is around this powerful but not sophisticated. If you've ever say you you live in you know your house and you drive to your job every day, right? You drive to your job. You drive to your job. You drive yeah. to your job. Yeah. You drive to your job. You're carving that groove. Yep. I live here. I go there every yep. single day, and then you get a new job. People have been in that position where you get in your car, the script (laughs) starts to run, and you start driving to your old job. Maybe you're like two (laughs) weeks into your new job, right? So you've started to acclimate and started to get, you know, more comfortable. First few few days, you're 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 worried, and you're you're like, you got your phone up early, (laughs) yeah. But two weeks in, you start to acclimate, and you find yourself driving to your old job. It's that script kicking in. It's that groove that you're going down. And you, you know, now you have to like intentionally train and get yourself to go down this new groove. Totally possible. And that's legit where self-identity comes in and where our attachment styles come in. And that's where um, our own personality comes in. And so many of these things all run off of this same basic mechanism. And it's so cool. So what, what did you start doing with your degree once you once you got through all that? So I took a little detour. I spent... A- academic journaling first? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I told my professors two-thirds of the way through my PhD program that I didn't want to be an academic researcher yeah. because I didn't love the idea of we would find these incredible things. Like within health behaviors, we would find mechanisms that helped people make better health decisions that were beyond just be more disciplined. Right. That doesn't work. Right. Right. We would find these emotional and affective keys to helping people make better decisions. And then we would write them in a way that no one can understand. (laughs) And we would publish them in places that no one will ever find. And we'd lock them away and talk to each other about them at academic conferences that no one attends. And that was just exhausting for me. No offense to those folks. You're doing amazingly important work. But someone needs to be the conduit between the academic world 
and people yeah. who need that information. Yeah. So I decided to leave academia. I ended up taking a detour, did data science work um, at a variety of companies. I still do some data science work today. I write statistical models and that type of thing. Um, but more recently, I've sort of re-stepped into the field of psychology with the work that I'm doing most recently to be that conduit. Yeah. I want people to have access to legitimately when I say life-changing information, yeah. I want them to have easy access to it in a way that they can use it in their life and understand it. And that it's digestible. I feel like you mm -hmm. and I both have this, some of that similar stuff. I mean, the way that I, when, when I'm working with people in, in training now, I mean, for years, but what, what, I, what I've figured out over the years is that if, if, you, can, if you can start really, really small, I mean, mm -hmm. I think I think you have to have you have to feel successful in that first you know appointment or in that first you know uh, bit of effort that you put in. So you know, I never give anybody more than like one new thing to do, and the next time I might add two more new things to to, mm -hmm. to work on. So it's never it's it's never, and it's also the language. You know, that's I mean, I was an English major, so the language for me is always important to think about. What's this and, and figuring it out because not everyone's going to have the same sort of language trigger that it can really mm -hmm. set off, you know, that understanding of, of embodiment when they're trying to go through a movement. And so I, I you know, I think you, you are doing very similar things in psych. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about starting small. We're doing these monthly 30 day challenges that seem so insignificant. Yeah. They seem so insignificant. Like right now, the challenge that we're running. Uh, or coming up, the challenge that we'll be running is around single tasking. So <laughs> your brain can't multitask. It's that's that's going to be hard for a it, lot of it people, can't, right? It can't do it. It just switches back and forth really quickly. Right. And you fatigue out by the end of the day. So picking a particular domain where you're going to decide, when I'm doing this activity, I'm only doing this activity. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, you say I sort of share my own story and <clears throat> authentically talk about my own experience. For me, when I do this, if I single task in a particular domain, I start to get anxious. Oh, and that's it's interesting. interesting to sit with that, to be in that single tasking situation, which is a form of mindfulness. It's not yeah. meditation, yeah. but it is a form of mindfulness. You sit in that situation and realize, huh, my propensity is to cram too much into every day. Yeah. And here I am. And I, I run around all the time saying, I wish I had more white space. I wish I had more time. I wish I had whatever. Here you have it and you're anxious about yeah, it. Right. And then what's cool about that is you can start to explore it. Why are you anxious? Yeah. What like I, I'm feeling a little bit guilty. Why are you guilty? Why do you feel like you have to do more than this thing? Do you, like do, do you think that's something that's sort of um, more related to, to modern world sense, say we've been on, on devices? Is that is that something that's changed? I think we have again, in the same sense that you drive to your old job right, and right. you can change and, and learn new patterns. I think the pattern that we have learned is to be constantly highly stimulated. Yeah. So you can easily get highly stimulated just with your phone, and that's not horrible. I'm I'm definitely a technologically yeah, inclined yeah. person. Love it for a thousand reasons, but. Um, it doesn't do well for us when we do, like the general working state of our mind should be calm. Right. And when you can't get to that because you're constantly having to stimulate yeah. because that calm state doesn't feel good, that's something we need to work on. Yeah. It's, it's funny that I, I, I have, uh, when, when, I'm, when I'm doing the work with, that I do with people with craniosacral work, one of the things that happens basically is, you know, and you know about the autonomic nervous mm -hmm. system, I'm sure, but when you when you bring up that resting response in the system, you know, people are so used to to sort of working under an adrenalized state. I mean, mm. we're like pumping coffee into it and sugar and just like trying to ramp up that that sympathetic response all the time to feel like we're really pushing and, and accomplishing and stuff. But I think what ends up happening is we, we, you know, we're sort of on the hamster wheel, mm -hmm. but we're not really getting anywhere. <laughs> you know, no, you and, do it just to make yourself feel normal because yeah. you're used to it. And and I and I try to give this to people once they, you know, sort of get off the table and you know they feel like, oh, I feel really sort of like, you know, heavy and in in my in my body in a totally different way. I I try to help them understand that, 
you know, there's a, you, you might feel a little sleepy for a half hour or so, but try to stay in that energetic state. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if, you know, what I find just from, you know, for me, usually like craniosacral work or acupuncture, very similar kind of feeling where all of a sudden I feel a little more balanced. I'm sort of in that, in that more level mm-hmm. autonomic state. I can, I can just sit with single tasks and, and actually mm-hmm. get a lot done without feeling like I'm racing, you know, and, right. and that's, it's, a, it's an, it's such an unusual feeling for people. I can see why, <laughs> why they would feel anxious sometimes. It is because you're so used to, you're so used to filling that space and filling that void. And I'm so much better with it now. I'm, there are things we were, before we started recording, I was saying, if I have five minutes, I'll shove five hours and stuff yeah, into it. Yeah. There's a natural tendency that I have to like to have lots of interesting things going on. But what I also do and what I know about myself, and this is why I, I talk about self-awareness so often, what I know about myself just through observation and a lot of intentional work is that energy is not my problem. Yeah. Going from yeah. zero to 60, I can do it in a millisecond. Yeah. Anytime, any place. Yeah. Slowing down is my problem. The end of the day is my problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. And so I've intentionally, but I want those times to go well too. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when it's time to stop working and it's time to focus in a different direction and be present with my kids, I want to actually do that, not just pay at lip service. So there are practices that I've built into the beginning of my day and the end of my day that turn me on and turn me off at the end of the day. There has to be a punctuation mark at the end of the day for me. And I just know that about myself through doing a bunch of this intentional work, the work that I started doing more recently that I, I legit think will change people's lives. Yeah. Have you found any strategies for coming down off of that energy ride? (laughs) Yeah. So for me, and and this will not work for everybody, but this is just me. For me, like I mentioned, I can ramp up zero to 60 and I'm a marathoner, man. I'll stay there. I can stay there all day long as long as I need to be. And it feels good for me to be in that state. I like getting things done. My husband jokes, if I ever needed a pool dug in the backyard, I'd give you a teaspoon (laughs) and say, I'll be back in a few hours. And I would dig the pool. It would happen. But at the end of the day, um, when I need to switch gears to be with my kids, it's also going to cognitively change. I yeah. love thinking about difficult concepts that I can't figure out. I love learning new things. I love really heavy things to think about. That's not what it's like hanging out with a three-year-old and yeah. a 10-month-old. Right. This is a totally different pace to life and a different level of input. So what I have to do at the end of the day, um, I have to work out at the end of the day, if I want it to go well, Mm. all the rest of that energy has to get expended out of my body. It's like one last push to get it all out. And then typically on the way to get my kids, I'm listening to something, not meditative in the sense of like my eyes are closed while I'm driving or, or I'm going into some Zen state where I'm not paying attention, but something that is more uh, monotone or think like singing bowls or something like that, that just allows me to kind of focus my thought and just come down a little bit. So I've expended all of my energy. I've kind of grounded and come down and now I can pick my kids up. I feel like that period is at the end of my day and I've finished it. Now I can't do that every day, but it goes way better when I do. Yeah. I'm I'm the same way. In fact, I was I was last night. I was outside, like finishing up mowing the lawn at eight thirty. It's like I needed. I had some other like energy to get out. Mm-hmm. One of the, I, I don't know. I've, since it's been warm out, this is like a new thing for me. We also just bought a house last year. So oh, exciting! Congrats! Yeah, yeah thanks. So we're you know I'm I'm kind of getting the outside set up so that it's it's a nice place to hang. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the things I'm starting to realize is that there's and and I've experienced this in different places I've traveled to in the world that sitting there and just being there at dusk as the sun sets has some sort of effect on, mm-hmm. you know, from, from that visual perspective, it has some sort of, you know, thing that it, it's changing in my brain. I can, mm-hmm. I can like feel my, my whole body wind down and like, I'm, you know, I just feel like if I can figure out a way to do this in the winter months, now I have to yeah. <laughs> switch this over. But, but I know that a lot of people do that. And, and it, it also, it's, it's different than, it's a different kind of light than we're experiencing if we're sitting there in front of a television yep. or on our iPad or whatever. And I, f- I feel like there's something there that I want to kind of keep, you know, working on because it, it definitely works for me. Mm-hmm. What I think about in that regard, it's it's with 
the way that our minds work in anxiety, it's with um, the type of light that we see, it's the activities we have, it's the yeah. food that we eat. Our bodies don't evolve very quickly. Like in, mm, in terms yeah. of like big evolution, yeah. now mind remapping synapses and that type of thing, that can happen more quickly. But in terms of our, our bodies and our being actually evolving, that takes millions of years potentially, yeah. depending upon you know what the aspect is we're right, talking about. Right. So if you think about who we are now, we're not very different as a species and as organisms from people who didn't have access to artificial light, right. whose bodies turned on when the lights came on in the world yeah. and turned off and slowed down when the lights went off. Yeah. So to me, the artificial nature, and again, it's not to say that our society is horrible, but it's just more to understand and be kind to ourselves when we need to check out from some of that stuff. Yeah. So artificial light does it. Food that those people wouldn't recognize as food, yeah. food that is so processed that they wouldn't even know what it is. There's yeah. some key pieces that you can understand why they just don't work well for us because biologically we're not that different from people who didn't have access to that stuff. And, and if we and if we know it, we can we can organize our, ourselves around it. I've been I've been working on my sleep this this last year. Oh I yeah. Read, did you read Matthew Walker's um, sleep book? I should. I oh, should. It's so good. Um, but but it, a lot of it is just like strategy for really setting yourself up for good sleep. It's almost like yep. it was, it's more that the, it's the strategy of, of what happens in those three hours before you go to sleep mm -hmm. is more important than like even the, the time that you go to sleep to mm -hmm. some extent. I mean, obviously you want to, you want to build in enough, enough time, but I think it, it just in terms of quality of sleep, that's one thing that I'm, I'm definitely noticing as I, I use a Fitbit tracker, <laughs> just kind yeah. of see what's going on with my sleep at night. I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that too. Yeah. It's, it's funny. This is going to sound totally counterintuitive and probably half the people listening to this are going to roll their eyes, but my sleep hygiene got so much better when I had kids and oh, not when they're crazy babies no, and no, they're no, just no. insane little beings. That's not what I'm talking about. So my, my youngest is 10 months now. So we're solidly back into this. Um, she was a great sleeper. So we were lucky yeah, in that we're regard, but lucky. we're like solidly back into my kids essentially go to bed at about the same time and yeah. essentially get up at about the same time. Yeah. Now, because of the way that my husband's schedule works, he's an ER physician, he's working nights and evenings and all this crazy stuff. So mostly I would say 90% north of that, I get up with the kids in the morning. Every single day, it's the same exact time, which means if I want to shower and get things done before them, I have to beat them awake. Right. Yeah. By about an hour, which means I get up at the exact same time yeah. every single day. Whereas before, I'm sure with your husband's crazy schedule, you yeah, were sort I'd of stay like, up with them, I'd sleep yeah, in yeah. and whatever. Yeah. And yeah. now it is like rigid and I go comatose at 10 p.m. Yeah. yeah. Just comatose at 10 p.m. Yeah. It's amazing. Sleep hygiene is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. So, um, I wanted to talk one more thing because I want to let people know about your podcast as well. Yeah. Um, and you've had one of my good friends on your podcast, Yay. <laughs> Sarah. Um, so how, how, did you, how did you decide on that particular format for your podcast? I'm, I'm curious. You've been my, you're my first uh, person who's, uh, who hosts a podcast who's been on my podcast. Look at that. Um, what, what led you into that from the, from the other work that you were doing to, to, to think about podcasting? You know, what happened is I left my traditional job and started doing freelance data science work. I eventually met a couple of business partners. We formed a company and I've been out of a normal job for quite a while now, a handful of years. And what happened is I realized fairly early on into that time period I have complete control over my schedule. Mm -hmm. Not complete, but way more than most people do. Yeah, right. And I have more time than most other people do. Now, I'm not one during the day to sit idly. Yeah. That's not me. But I wanted to do something meaningful and something that was new and hard that I didn't know how to do. Yeah. And I had just discovered podcasts, and I'm like, well, these people are doing this. I'm, I think... 
I think I'm going to start a podcast today. It was literally that much thought and strategy that went into it. I knew there were amazing women around me who were doing incredible things. And so I wanted to interview them and share their stories. And what's happened is, and this is just a permission slip to people who want to do something new. My husband was listening to my earlier episodes and he was like, honey, no offense, but you sucked then compared to what you do now. And it's true. You get better over time. Totally. I I feel the same way. And I I also honed my message over time. I wasn't quite sure what I was all about until you just start talking and talk for a really long time and you find that you gravitate toward a couple of themes. So the notion of life design is something that I gravitated toward because it was something that I was doing for myself and didn't have a name for. And so it was fun to come up with, you know, a name for something where you're applying the design thinking process to your own life to intentionally make it better for yourself. And these ideas from psychology, I mentioned being that conduit from academia into normal people's lives. I was constantly talking about dissonance and identity and self-awareness and anxiety and all these things. I'm like, I'm doing this. So the podcast began as just hey, here's some cool people you might want to know about and some things you could learn from them. But now it's much more into you are going to live one life. You're going to have one shot at this. Here's some things you can learn from other people. Here's some stuff you can learn from two powerful fields. Now go do. Like go do and do something better with the life that you have. So it's called Women Inspired. If people want to check it out, I'm on all the places um, I'd love to have you. It's it's women inspired, but we talk about things that are really relevant to uh, everybody. I would say. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And and it's also like I think your interest in life design is you're you're, you're finding people who are basically in some way sort of pushing into that. And you're, you, I mean, I think you <laughs> we we do these things because it's really about us. We're trying to figure out things for ourselves. It's right? true. Trying to solve some of our own problems. It's and, true. And and I feel like that's been a lot of what's you know I. In some ways, too, I, I, feel, I feel very much the same way as you is, you know, we have this one shot. What are we really doing with this? And, mm-hmm. I, and it's, uh, I, was, I was telling my son one day, I could also call this like my midlife crisis podcast. But, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I think I'm, I'm in a way, I've sort of, I'm sort of stepping, I've, I've gone through a pretty good chunk of my career and I feel very comfortable with, with you know, who I am in that. But there's something more that I kind of want to evolve, you know, through through maybe another means or or even even just to sort of re- continue to reinvigorate my work, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's kind of what why I ended up starting the podcast. As I look back now, it's been like two and a half years. So yeah, well, and the people I've met too, I'm constantly yeah, totally astounded by who is willing to sit down with me for an hour. I was talking to a woman the other day. Her episode hasn't come out yet, but I was talking to her the other day for her interview. And she said, oh, you know what? Shoot, could you email me the rest? We were wrapped up. She said, can you email me the rest of those details? Um, I have to go. I'm on the Ellen show today. I'm like, wait, I'm sorry. Are you going to talk to Ellen DeGeneres? She's like, yeah, that's where I'm going next. I'm like, I'm huge. I'm big time. My guests are on (laughs) Ellen. This is awesome. But it's just crazy. I'm astounded by who's willing to sit down with me and just bear their soul. It's amazing. I know. It's crazy. So what's the biggest life lesson you've picked up just from engaging with an audience? There's so many. There are so, so many. Um, What's interesting is I mentioned that I've spoken with, you know, all these incredible women, right? These incredible women who survived the Holocaust and are world champion skydivers and survived plane crashes. And I mean, crazy, cool people, uh, people who have built billion-dollar companies, and you name it. And the thing that they have resoundingly said is that the key to their success was simply that they started and Uh, they kept going even when they fell on their face. Because there's two pieces to that. They started just naively, not realizing how hard the road would be that they're getting on. It's like they went to hike some crazy 200 mile trail and they brought a granola bar and they're like, yeah, it's probably fine. I'm just going to go. But they did that and figured it out along the way. And they also didn't evaluate pitfalls as a sign that they weren't cut out to do this. Mm. They just, oh, huh, I fell. I guess I'll do something different next time. And they just keep going. And so, so much of what I've learned from them is that 
and they'll admit this. They'll say this out loud, on, which is also amazing. They'll say this out loud, even though I'm going to go syndicate this everywhere in the world and people yeah. in Africa are going to hear this, yeah. right? Um, they'll say, there's nothing special about me. I'm not smarter. I didn't have more money. I didn't have more connections. I didn't have anything that other people don't have. I'm not special. I just started and kept going. Yeah. And that to me has become one of my mantras. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just put something out there. Yeah. Again, go listen to my first episodes. They suck. Yeah. They're bad. And there's amazing people on them. And I wish I could go re-record with all of them <laughs> because I'm so much better now. But truly, it's, it's so much easier now for me to just imperfectly, like brutally imperfectly start something because I know it won't get off the ground yeah. if I don't. Yeah, there was, there was a... I forget what the Robert Redford did this series. I don't know if it was for HBO or whatever, but he would have these two people. He would just take two sort of important fe- feeling people and put them together and, and kind of let them have conversations. Mm. One of them was Maya Angelou and Dave Chappelle. I can't even imagine. You have to watch it. It's like it's astounding, but it it's it's really sort of uh, with what you're talking about. Maya Angelou is is talking about Marty, Martin Luther King. And wow. Malcolm, Malcolm X, all these people who were who were first her, name basis, yeah, her close friends, and you know, as they were becoming friends, not all of them were were being recognized in the way that we recognize them now from right. a historical perspective, and you know, she would she would say the exact same thing, and, and the, the the other part of that, and I think Dave asks her about about you know some of that too, like how, like you're you're larger than life, how. And she's like, I'm I'm just an ordinary person though too. And I was and I was just an ordinary person then. It's 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 all it's all a matter of how the world perceives this thing that you're mm-hmm. in, in, engaged with, and and what people will engage with really is passion. Mm-hmm. And and that's and that's that was the thing that I took away from that. I was like, okay, you just have to really be about the thing and and don't mm-hmm. do things that you <laughs> that you aren't really about. For two reasons. I mean, one, it's not going to resonate with anyone else. So if you want a project that you're doing to be objectively successful, the way to do it is to actually care about it. Care about it more than just how many people will listen and how much money will I make. Those are nice side effects. But if you want that to happen, you have to care. But then two, going back to something I said earlier, you only get to live once. And I mean that in the sense of like, deep philosophy, not YOLO, let's go jump off a cliff, right? right. I mean, you get one shot here. And when you talk to, there's been research done with people who are dying and they all regret the same things. They regret working too much. They regret not making themselves, letting themselves be happy. They regret not living as the person they truly are. And that is something that resonates with me so much because we spend so much time worrying about other people's opinions to the point that you're going to worry about those opinions your whole life and then you're you're going to regret what you didn't do because you held yourself back and at the time that you regret it it will be too late. Yeah. So you have however old you are now, you've got you know a runway <clears throat> still in front of you to be the person you actually are and do the stuff you actually want to do. Yeah. If you want to do a podcast about growing heirloom tomatoes and that's all you want to talk about and there might be three listeners I don't care do yeah, that podcast yeah, over yeah. the one that you think oh I guess I'll start watching Game of Thrones because I think maybe more people will listen to that yeah. who cares yeah. do the thing that makes you happy that you're passionate about because like you said they're going to follow your passion and you're going to be a lot more fulfilled in the process and 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 there's a, there's just a like there's a growth arc of what happens when you kind of get into something like this it's not like and and I and I think it's sort of it it just starts to it it starts to sort of push you forward in some ways. It's like once you once you learn something new or once you're you know engaged in something, you start to get this you get this the kind of sense of the long game of of what this is. Mm-hmm. You, you don't necessarily get it you know those first few episodes, you no. know, and and that's and that's the thing is and that's why it's okay to suck for a little while. And like I I didn't even for a while try to even promote the podcast just because I was like and I have had some I had some really good guests on yeah. too. Yeah. But I, but I, but I felt like I'm still learning. I'm still learning myself in this process, and and the, the more the more comfortable I came with became with what what I what I wanted to get from having these conversations with guests. I feel like the conversations just got better too. Mm-hmm. And and but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily about 
you know, what kind of attention I could get with this. It, 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 I think as I got better, it became more and more honed down to, you know, what 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 my what I felt like my my message was, and also what I wanted to get out of this. I'm I putting a, a lot of time into this project. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to really feel like I'm 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 investing in something that's worthwhile for myself too. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that too, and you probably have seen the same thing, just from interviewing people, from the act of interviewing yeah. so many people. You become a much better listener. Oh, totally. I'm looking for, you know, what are they saying? Where does it connect to what they've said before? And what's yeah. my next question going to be? You know, I'm listening, listening, listening to what they're saying. Um, you get really good at connecting to people deeply, quickly, like really quickly, because yeah. your episodes aren't as good if you're not jiving with that person. Yeah. So you get good at that really quickly. There's not very much in the realm of, interviews, public speaking, meetings, anything like that, that ever even registers on my anxiety meter at all anymore. Yeah. Because you've done it so long, I just know it's going to be fine. And so if, if anything, if there's somebody who, you know, wants help in that domain, start a podcast and you don't even have to necessarily syndicate it, just do it for the sake of practicing, and maybe that's what Toastmasters is or whatever, but do it for the sake of practicing because the skills that you get out of it, I would have never expected I was going to get that out of it. And, and I think you can do it in, in your daily conversations. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the one thing that I've started to realize. I, I, I did a podcast with a friend who was asking me about like how I heard my voice. And I, I was telling her that like, sometimes I start to hear my, my voice as my podcast voice, you know, cause you, you, how you hear it differently in your headphones, yeah. you know what I mean? Yep. And so all of a sudden, my 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 conversations with people started to become more like that. But I would I would find more and more that I would lose myself back into just focusing on what people were saying, and that and that early and early on when I first started doing these, I would I would sort of have prepared things that I would wait to say, and then by, yeah. the, by the time I got to it, it was like, well, that's not really something I need to talk about anymore. Yeah. We've already passed that. Yeah. And now I'm now I feel like just the just the act of of being so you know so involved in what someone has to say and mm-hmm. just being so present to that, you lose yourself in that a little bit more. And it's, it's, it doesn't become about you anymore. It just becomes about this thing that's growing out of, out of conversation. I think that's, that's like a, such an invaluable thing in any, any endeavor. Totally agree. Yep. I've had the same exact experience. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that weird. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this with me. Um, just a bit of promo. Your, your new project is called Peak Mind. Is that correct? Yeah. If you go to www.peakmindpsychology.com, you can learn more about it. It is that conduit yeah. between academic psychology and normal everyday life. It's all evidence-based stuff. It's um, ways for you to use this life-changing information from the field of psychology to improve your life. We and, call it yeah, yeah, and the, and the, the way that you described it earlier—sorry to interrupt you—is—is um, is what I think is really important. I think a lot of people would would understand from this perspective, which is that there there isn't anything in psychology or in, mm-hmm. in, in therapy that's that is kind of set up the way that you guys have done it, which is kind of a more like holistic style approach, mm-hmm. thinking about about mental health as in, in a more preventative sort of way, mm-hmm. rather than you know trying to put out fires after we have problems. Yeah, we. I mean. Therapy has a beautiful role that it plays. I've gone twice in my life. It has been incredibly transformative. I needed to be there and I was grateful for it. But as the only mechanism that you can get this information, it it's not good enough. We, you know, Ashley, my business partner, and I started to talk about it and we said, you know, what people need, it's what they what we need them to develop is psychological strength. So we called it Peak Mind, the Center yeah, for Psychological yeah. Strength. We need them to develop that. And we're like, where is the gym membership for your mind? You yeah. go to the gym to strengthen your body so it's less likely that you'll get sick, or if you do, you'll be more resilient. Yeah. Where is that for your mind? Yeah. We don't have that. We wait until you get sick, and then you go to therapy, which is, again, useful, but it's not good enough. Well, and, and the thing is people go to therapy once there's a problem, they start learning these tools. Mm-hmm. 
but they're they're learning these tools in the midst of crisis right. a lot of times and it's like right. how focused can you really get in the middle of crisis on on that you know they kind of get you through crisis a lot of times i mean i i, I usually tell people if they've been through something like this keep going for a while like this is mm-hmm. this is your own self work this is about you building tools for your tool you know sort of tool set for yourself but it sounds like that's what you guys are doing but in a more sort of preventative fashion very much so we're teaching people how to do this on a daily basis these are not gigantic steps but if you do do them it it'll remap your mind like oh. it it's based on these mechanisms that we know um, this is how your mind stores information this is how it uses it and it guides your behavior if you want a different outcome you have to intentionally force your brain down a new groove. You have to start carving a new groove for your mind. And these are exercises and tools and techniques that will allow you to do that. And we're bringing in the best from positive psychology and clinical, cognitive and social psych, um, and also the field of design thinking and life design. We're infusing a ton of that into it. So the exercises you do, the hands-on stuff, it's actually really fun because it's all design thinking inspired but it's psychological concepts that we're working on. It's yeah. really cool and unique. I'm so proud of it, and I'm so excited about it. That's so awesome. Well, this is fun. I'm glad we got to do this fun. Yes, this All is right. so great. I was so glad to be here. April Seifert, folks. Always so much fun talking to her. One of the things I've come to realize through the work in my own practice is that when we're Looking to improve our health in any way, whether it be getting fitter, eating better, improving our posture, managing an ongoing health challenge, or just getting more sleep. What we're really aiming for is to improve our day-to-day experience in our lives, in our bodies, and with the people that we've spent our time with. I see April, through her projects, doing something that I believe is critical, both in her podcast and her Peak Mind concept, helping people build practical tools to develop the mindset for the kind of life they want to lead, and with ongoing support for those times when we need it the most. I'm also thankful that she's starting to tell her story, uh, the story of her condition with her audience and with all of you. It's a great reminder that we can live with even greater strength by sharing our weak spots. It took me about 10 years in my career to start sharing the story of my chronic back pain period because I thought it would lessen my believability as a practitioner. It turned out the opposite was true. In fact, some people couldn't believe that I had been there and that I had come out appearing as healthy as I am. And I can really relate to April's story in this way because some of the imbalances I have structurally that lead to my orthopedic problems are ongoing and I have to be diligent about keeping up with my exercises and uh, keep a positive mind, mindset when, when things get off track as well. After driving about 1,500 kilometers or about 1,000 miles around Iceland last week, my symptomatic sacroiliac joint started to bother me. And I was. this often happens when I'm out of my usual routine. But fortunately, after 20 years or so of, at 25, I guess, of, of dealing with it, that I, I know ways to get out of it. And sometimes it takes a few days for me to get back on track and I just have to be patient and, and do my work. I might also turn to the help of an acupuncturist, osteopath, or body worker. But most of the focus is just on self-care, moving gently for a little while, doing my stretches and making sure I get enough sleep to heal. If you're looking to mobilize your mental landscape and develop your mental strength, I suggest checking out peakmindpsychology.com to learn more about their program. I'm about to start it myself, so I'll, I'll check in with you all and let you know what I'm getting from it. If you like this topic and conversation and believe a podcast can make a difference, would you consider contributing to the growth of this project? It takes just one minute and you can become a supporter for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash Highwood Health. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.